Acts 26, 12 through 20. So you can close your eyes or you can follow along on the screen. Here we go. Here's our passage we're going to look at. Uh, I should set this up a little bit. This is Paul, and he's giving one of his defenses. We've been doing all these defenses lately. And this is Paul's longest impassioned defense that he gives in the whole book. He's on trial. He's before King Agrippa, King's sister Bernice, Festus the governor, huge audience. So this is like the climax of, of Paul's ministry in many ways. This isn't the whole defense, but this is, this is the part of it we're going to look at today. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests when at midday along the road, Your Excellency, I, Your Excellency, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? The Lord answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. After that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the countryside of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. Let's pray together for our time reflecting on this. Dear Lord, dear Lord, we want to hear from you words we need to hear. Please make this text come alive for us. Convict us by your spirit. Speak through me. Give us ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you're keeping score, I, I <laughs> kind of skipped a chapter. I, I kind of skipped 25. Let me back up. 22 was Paul defending himself, himself on the steps of the temple, and it's mainly a Jewish audience, and he gives this speech. And then 23 is Paul defending himself before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And then 24 is Paul defending himself before Felix, the governor. And 25, which I'm kind of sort of skipping, but I'm going to talk about right now, is Paul defending himself kind of, sort of, kind of, before a new governor, Festus. So he's been languishing in prison for two years. Felix left him there, and this new governor comes in, and immediately, almost, it seems, goes down to Caesarea to hear about this Jewish guy who we've been keeping in prison for two years. And Paul's defense is basically this. 
He says, okay, um, here's my defense. I have in no way committed an offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against the emperor. I appeal to Caesar. That's kind of it. And then King Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive and there are other rulers and they consult with Festus who's heard this. And Festus is like, I don't know what to do with this guy. I don't even know what to write to the emperor about this appeal. Can you help me and listen to what he has to say? We're skipping 25 because I, everyone kind of agrees that 25 narratively is just kind of this bridge chapter between speeches that kind of moves us forward so that we can get to 26. It's not to say there aren't important things in 25, but they just didn't grip me in the way that 26 did. So I'm taking a little liberty. We're going to dive right into this speech before... King Agrippa. So as I said, this speech is, is, is kind of the biggest one, the climactic one. You've got Festus the governor, you've got Agrippa and his sister Bernice, you've got this huge audience hall, it says, with pomp and circumstance. Oh no, that's graduation, just pomp. And Paul pours out his heart before them. This is the third time in the book we've heard the story of Paul's Damascus Road experience. We heard it in chapter 9 for the first time. We heard it in 22 for the second time. It's the last time we'll hear it. When we talked about it in 22, and I made a big deal of like how it changes, and one of the changes is each time Paul tells the story, the light becomes bigger and brighter and more significant and part of the story, and we saw it today. It's the brightest light ever, brighter than the sun. I was talking about the light, reflecting on the light, Don Mills made a wonderful, fascinating observation to me. He said, yeah, that's awesome. Also, I love the fact that he just repeats himself. Because, you know, I kind of tell my stories a lot, and there's some biblical precedent for just telling your stories a lot. That makes me feel better. And I said, that makes me feel better too. So I just had to note that. If you repeat yourself, it's fine. You're in good company. Biblically, that's good, I guess. So we get it the third time. We're not going to talk about the light. There's another big difference we're going to talk about. Another big difference, and this was wonderful on the handout that doesn't exist except on my computer. And it compared the three times Paul gives his testimony about the Damascus Road. And what you would have seen if you'd seen this beautiful chart is this time, and we saw it here, this time, Paul gives us all this what? Language that, that Jesus shares with him on the road. We don't get a lot of Jesus talking in the other two occasions when he tells the story. And this time Jesus just talks and he talks and he talks and he says, Paul, I'm going to appoint you and commission you. This is why I've came and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to send you to your people and the Gentiles. And he gives Paul a calling. And so folks have rightly noted, and this is fascinating, if you really just look at it on the face, the first two times Paul tells the story, you could call it his conversion story. But not so much this time. This time it's more his calling story. And that's interesting and that's important for us to reckon with. Why does he do that? Well, he's been ministering for a long time now. He's had all these missionary journeys. He's as we know, sort of from sources outside the Bible, he's probably not going to live that much longer. 27, 28, he gets to Rome, and then the book stops. 
probably dies there. So he's been ministering for a long time. And as he reflects back on Jesus in his life, even from the very beginning moments, now he thinks of it more in terms of his life's work that Jesus called him to. So I want to ask this, do we all have a calling? I don't know. Here's why I don't know. Not everything in the Bible is to be imitated. Did, did, did you know that? As my Old Testament, no, New Testament professor put it, Jesus wore sandals. You do not have to wear sandals. The Bible doesn't work like that. Okay, not everything is to be imitated. More serious note, Jesus said a lot of things because he was, what, the divine, only begotten son of man, son of God, in a way that we aren't, we should not imitate all of his words as we talk about ourselves. So this thing, this calling thing, this calling, this claim, I've come for this purpose to appoint you. Is that something that applies broadly or is that just Paul? Well, it applies to certain other people, right? Prophets in the Bible, they get this special divine appearance that appoints them and commissions them to do work. You get Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and he's in the throne room, and he sees the hem of God's robe fill the whole temple, and there's seraphs, and they're singing, and one of them puts a coal on his tongue to purify him, and this is like a special thing. That does not happen to everyone, okay? Doing some sophisticated biblical interpretation here. And then there's Jeremiah, and God appoints him and says, now I have put my words in your mouth and touches his mouth with his hand. That does not happen to everyone. So prophets get like a special calling. And apostles, I think, get a special calling because we learned in chapter one that you've got to have a special criteria to be an apostle. You have to have walked with Jesus like every single day for the period of his ministry. And there were only two of those guys. Well, there may have been more, but there were two that were put forward. Matthias and Joseph called Barsabbas. So that's a special calling. That doesn't apply to everyone. So what do we do? Is calling kind of a special thing for some Christians? Or is calling being commissioned, being appointed to use your gifts, your place, your history to do a unique, special, important thing for the kingdom of God? Is that an everyone thing? Here's the way I thought about it this week. Here's my wrestlings. Matthew 28, end of the gospel of Matthew. What does Jesus say? He sends them out, the 11. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that I commanded you. Teach them to obey. Well, that's, that's a mission. That's a calling. That's a task. Again, though, is that just those 11? I don't know. Christians throughout the centuries have seen in that calling a sort of thing that we should all kind of do at some point in some way. And that's revealing. If Christians throughout the centuries have seen it that way, that's, 
probably how we should think about it. So maybe there's a calling embedded there. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved, not by your own works, lest you should boast, right? And you keep reading, you keep going. 10th verse says we were, create, we were created to do good works, which he appointed beforehand for us. And so what? That kind of feels calling-ish, if we're all created to do certain good works, that feels a little bit more like being appointed to a mission. Maybe, hmm, I'm still struggling. I think we get closer and closer to the idea of calling with something like this. 1 Corinthians 12, famous chapter on all the different spiritual gifts that God gives to people. Gifts like wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Okay, I listed all of them. There are others, but, but those are the ones that Paul mentions. And he says, God distributes these differently. Now, here's what's interesting. The first part of that, here's what he says. Listen carefully. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. All right. And there are varieties of services, that's kind of like callings, works, doing those gifts in the world. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. Okay, still don't know if everyone has one. Keep going. And there are varieties of activities. All right, okay. It is the same God who activates, listen to this part, who activates all of them in everyone to each or to all is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I think, I think we have to read that as God has given each person, every person, gifts to use in an active way to upbuild the kingdom of God. That comes pretty darn close to answering my question about calling. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That suggests that all of us, when we work in any sort of capacity, do it in a uniquely, profoundly Christian way. That sounds like calling. 1 Corinthians 10, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. We're getting real close. And finally, this is what brings it home for me, I think, is just the fact that Jesus is always, his gospel is what? His good news? The kingdom has come near. And he's always talking about the kingdom and kind of putting people to work and sending them out. And he's all about building up this reality in the world and I've got to confess to you, it's not entirely clear. It's not addressed explicitly in the Bible. But I really do think, I really do think that we all have a calling. We all have a role to play that God created us to play. We all have gifts. We all have work. We all have the ability to help build up the reality of God's kingdom on earth. And I think he created all of us all of us to have a calling like that.
We could stop there because that's kind of the end of the biblical interpretation, but I'm going to give you a little bit more. And the little bit more is this. It's kind of like when Paul says, these aren't words of the Lord, but these are my words, and I think I'm kind of trusted. I'm just going to offer you a few, few scattered reflections on calling and what it means and things that have been important to me in my life. Things I've shared with younger people whom I've mentored, For what it's worth, here's some ways that I think it's important for us to talk about calling. All right, let's talk first about careers. You know, people's jobs and how they spend their most of their time. We tend to conflate career and calling. We think that calling is just a matter of career. That's not true. We'll talk about that in a minute. Career's darn important. It's where you spend more hours than you do anything else, if you think about it. So where you spend your time putting in work and effort, blood, sweat, and tears, pretty darn important. I do not think, I do not think that calling means that we all have to do some sort of overt ministry, overt social justice work, overt, you know, clearly meaningful, directly relevant kingdom work. I don't think that's true. But I have some worries. I worry that the default position in context I've been in for Christians is not that. The default position is go do something successful and prestigious and makes a lot of money and go to church on Sunday. That's sort of the default in the context I've been in. And shouldn't the default rather be go do something that directly ministers to and helps people in a profound way, and then you might be pulled off that default to go do something else. Worry about the default. I worry that we don't ever ask if Christians should do every profession. I worry. We just assume that we can. Okay, maybe Christians shouldn't be prostitutes. Besides that, we can do anything else. But is that right? Here's something that I, I find still to this day challenging. When I was in law school and I was graduating, I was going to join a big firm and I knew I was going to work 80 to 100 hour weeks and my friends were all going to work 80 to 100 hour weeks. Here's the question that I had that I still have. Is it possible to grow as a Christian doing that? Structurally, is it possible? If you don't have time to go to a Bible study and you don't have time to pray and you don't have time to be in an accountability group and you don't really have time because you're usually too exhausted to go on church on Sundays, because you're working 100-hour weeks, should you do that job? Is it possible to grow in Christ, in your faith, and have that job? It's a question we should ask. So I worry about that when we talk about career and calling. I worry that we don't question and talk about all the time what it means to be a distinctly Christian blank Whatever your career is, what difference does it make that you have this deep abiding faith in Jesus? How does that make how you do your job different and look different than other people who do that? 
that aren't in that? How does it affect the way you treat customers, the way you act with integrity, the way you think about fairness, the culture that you create, the way that you treat coworkers? Stephen Levy put it this way one time. I love this. He said, you know, what about like a science textbook? Could a Christian write a science textbook deeply informed by their faith as a Christian? Doesn't necessarily mention Jesus, but somehow in the way that it's told and written and the fact that the person brought their faith to bear, somehow it's a Christian science textbook. What does that mean? Fascinating to think about. I worry about this. Kurt, correct me later if I'm wrong in, in, in how I'm characterizing this. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. There's this term in uh, psychology called cognitive dissonance. I heard this years ago, and it's haunted me. This is when two things in your life conflict. Typically, your beliefs and your actions. Okay? So if you are a pacifist, and you are, are so opposed to engaging in acts of warfare, and you worked for a military contractor making bombs all day, that's cognitive dissonance, right? That tension between what you believe and what you do means something has to give. And I was reading about this last night, and here's what typically happens, is that we have to find a way to resolve our dissonance. And so usually, unless we are deliberate and you left the job at the factory, our beliefs kind of erode and fade away and morph into something more palatable. In other words, you'd stop being a pacifist. Slowly but surely, and you'd wake up one day and you'd say, I'm not a pacifist anymore. The idea of cognitive dissonance, the reason why it worries me is this. I worry about my actions. When I develop habits, that are not Christian habits, I worry how that's going to infect, infect the way I view the world, infect my beliefs, subtly erode them, subtly change them. So if we live most of our day, 10 hours a day, and we don't ever ask these questions of calling, these questions of how our Christian faith should change the way we act and make us look distinct in whatever we do, then we kind of may end up living in this cognitive dissonance world where for 10 hours a day, for all practical purposes, we're kind of living agnostically. And then we put on our Christian hat when we go to Bible study or when we go to pray. We have to live consistently throughout the day to avoid cognitive dissonance. So I think careers are important. I got to say this. I want to move on to point two, but I got to say this. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely what I'm saying is the province of elites. I want to acknowledge that. I mean, there are Christians whose lives are what? Laboring 100 hours a week in, in, in a factory just to put food on the table so they don't die and their kids don't starve. So, I want to acknowledge that thinking about whether or not you have a meaningful job and how you do it in a Christian way is absolutely an elite question. I would justify that simply by saying, if you are in an elite position, it is a question you have to ask. 
you might as well wrestle with it instead of just go the default route. I would also say this, as much as I don't like to, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. If you have the luxury to think about what kind of job you should have, you should think about what kind of job you should have. It's not just career though. Paul was a tent maker. Makes me wonder, like how did Paul's deep abiding faith change his tents? kind of tents did Paul make? Were they the same tents? Or would people come along? Have you ever had this where you, you encounter someone and they just do something with such excellence, like they're working for some king somewhere? And you're like, I wonder if they're a Christian. They just do that so well. I've had that. Maybe Paul's tents were amazing. But it's not just career. So Paul didn't necessarily what? Find his deepest calling in his tent making. Jesus doesn't say anything in the passage today about Paul's tent making. He talks about what he's going to do in sharing the gospel. So his, his calling was kind of sort of primarily located outside his nine to five job. Reminds me that we kind of have an unhealthy relationship with work. We kind of want to reduce everything to career. No, there's a lot outside of that. So what does a calling look like if, if we're not talking about your career? Well, Here's a couple ideas. Being a parent, that's like a built-in calling, I think. Like, I think if you're a parent, you automatically have a calling, right? Because I mean, you want to, it's gone, the uh, visual aid. You want to try to have that. Love is kind, love is gentle, love is patient, like I prayed. You want to have that always before your children. Their formation is to a large extent in your hands. That is a calling. It's kind of like what I heard one time. I love this. I heard a talk at a retreat, and this old, wizened, experienced pastor said he often gets the question, from young men thinking about proposing, how do I know if she's the right one? And he said, the answer is simple. As soon as she says, I do, she's the right one. That was his response. As soon as you become a parent, you have a calling, whether you want it or not. Don Naples talked about another one. Don asked during prayer time for something that he's been asking for for a while, and I feel convicted. It is our role and our job to try to help Don with this. He said, look, all I can really do now is I can, I'm, I'm here, I'm by myself. I, I can pray for myself, and I can pray for other people, and I want to do that, and that's my calling, that's my ministry, that's my role. We've got to make that possible for Don. There's a pastor that I listen to regularly from a church in Minneapolis named Greg Boyd, and he told a story of how his father, towards the end of his life, uh, I think he had some sort of cancer. Anyway, it was terminal, and it was, it was breaking down his body, and his dad became a Christian later in life. And his dad was, got to a point where he was kind of bedridden, and he came to uh, Greg Boyd and said, I, I, I want to be, be a prayer warrior. This is what I need to do now. 
This is my life. This is my calling. This is what, what God wants me to do. And so he did. Last few years of his life, he's prayed all the time. I called Frank Guerra yesterday to double-check my facts. Because I remember Frank talking like this. He was talking about early on when he was headmaster of BTA, he had this kind of conversion moment, this seminal moment where he realized that something that God was fundamentally calling him to in that job was to wake up early every morning and to pray for every student by name. He said that changed his life unlike anything else. And I asked him yesterday, I said, do I have it right? He said, you have it right. He said, my relationship with God before that was great. It was fine. It was wonderful. My relationship with God after I learned and lived into and embraced that calling was so much better. And he said, not only that, but I used to tell the faculty, and I still stand by this. He said, I, I believe that's the most important thing I ever did at BTA. Sometimes calling means putting one foot in front of the other. In Acts 9, when Jesus first appears to Paul on the Damascus Road, we hear Jesus say this. I myself will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I have a friend, some of you probably have friends like this, who struggles so much, so much, so much with depression and anxiety and OCD and kind of just an amalgam of all sorts of afflictions that he often, often can't get out of bed. And I tell him, and I mean this, I say, your perseverance is your calling right now. Your perseverance gives me hope. It encourages me. I didn't inherit the sort of genetics that you have, the environment you've lived through, and it was a hard environment. But when you call me and you ask me for prayer and you want to meet and you just, you just function, you just kind of you, you just keep going because getting out of bed for you is, is a Herculean task. That gives me hope. That gives me encouragement. Don't undervalue that. Just keep going. That's his calling right now. And it gives me profound encouragement that he can do what he does. I think I want to end here. What I'm, what I'm saying, I think, about with all these scattered reflections about calling is that I am fundamentally convinced that we were made to participate and contribute. You can call it work, but we all want to, we all want to give something and have some meaning in what we do. This idea of God calling us into mission, into adventure, into kingdom is one of the best ways for me to get outside myself, the antidote to kind of just living for myself and being selfish and being depressed and being empty. All the stuff that I talked about last week is thinking, what, what, what is God calling me to, to, to help with, to do, to live into? 
Kanai was telling me this week about conversation he had at school with some kids. This one kid said, I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I thought that was awesome. So the kid said, I used to be. Can I ask him a little more? And he said, well, I guess I was till about age five, six, seven. And then um, I lost my favorite stuffed animal. And I prayed very fervently that God would give that animal back. And he didn't. So I don't believe in God anymore. And Kanai said something that was so wonderful to me. He said something like, Dad, thank you for, for teaching me in my life that, that, that prayer is not kind of just that, that God's not just, just Santa Claus. He was just talking about the calling of formation, of talking and teaching and learning. But it just reminded me again that if we're in it because we think that God's going to make us happy and joyous and fulfilled and answer every request, we're going to end up really disillusioned and maybe even walking away. But if we're in it because God is calling us to join him in this amazing redemption project and he has a unique role for us to play in that, and that role is hard, but that role is true and why we were made, and I think we'll find life. Amen.